Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Uh, so uh, so good to see you guys. Oh, what a great morning, a celebration. Uh, I love getting to hear Morgan. Uh, glad her family could make it down uh, from Missouri uh, to be a part of that. And uh, if you're a guest with us, really glad that you're here. Uh, what you've heard us sing about and talk about this morning is what we think is the central uh, story of all of the universe. And that's the fact that God loved us enough to come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, he died on a cross for our sins. He was resurrected and he offers us uh, to us uh, new life in him. And so uh, if you get nothing else today, hopefully you'll uh, at least get that. Uh, And if you'd like to talk to any of us after the service, we would love to do that. We've got a team out there at the Welcome Center. Uh, They would love nothing more than to connect with you. Uh, They've got some orange name tags uh, and uh, they are there to help you in any way, answer any questions. If you are a guest with us, if it's your first time, we would love to get a chance to know you. Just say, thanks for being here. Uh, You can help us out with that. There's a connection card uh, in the seat back in front of you and uh, you can fill that out sometime during the service. There's some black boxes. Uh, at the exits where uh, people can drop cards or offerings or anything like that. Uh, You can drop that there or you can just go online uh, to journeyjonesworld.com and uh, you can uh, do it that way, do it online. Uh, But if you're old fashioned, you like to write, uh, then uh, you're more than welcome to do that. Hey, also don't forget real quick before we get into our uh, our teaching today, uh, today uh, is our journey basics, which is, well, we had, we were supposed to do it last week. I was out sick last week. uh, And so we bumped it back to this week. And so if, uh, if you missed that announcement, uh, plan to stay right after the service in here. You can go out. I hear there's biscuits and gravy in the house uh, today. So it's a big day for us. Uh, and so get biscuits and gravy, come back in uh, and we'll spend the 1030 hour together and just talk about our vision of where we're going. And we would uh, uh, love to get to know you a little bit better and help you along your way. Hey, uh, if you're new uh, to this place, uh, one thing we do around here is we always open scripture every week. Uh, we open our Bibles and uh, we look at what the Bible says about numerous topics. Uh, so you'll hear us talk about things called series. Uh, A series is basically just a series of teachings or a series of messages or a series of sermons, uh, either on a particular topic. Uh, Sometimes we'll go through a book of the Bible. And uh, what we like to do here is we like to just go uh, line by line, verse by verse, and just try to unpack that. Okay. And so today we are beginning a new journey uh, with a new series. It's called Men, Women, and the Kingdom of God, men, women, and the kingdom of God. And so today we're going to be in Genesis chapters one through three. And so if you're new to the Bible, it's a really easy place to start. It's right at the beginning. And so we're going to dig into a, kind of an overview of three chapters uh, and we're going to set the stage for what we're calling today divine design. Now, if you hear uh, the title, men, women, and the kingdom of God, you might be asking the question, well, what's that about? Well, kind of the subheading of that is reclaiming God's vision for his image bearers. And what we're going to be talking about over the next six weeks is we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about men and women and relationships and uh, how we find ourselves in God's story. And so we're going to dig into some uh, really hefty passages and we're going to survey six uh, key passages together that the Bible... uh, refers to this specific topic, these specific issues, uh, and these specific 
questions. But the reason we're talking about this is not just because it's in there, though that's a really good reason to talk about anything that's in Scripture. Uh, I think that the real reason we're talking about men, women, and the kingdom of God is I think that as I look across this room, everybody wants clarity when it comes to uh, these types of relationships. I mean, if you're a single person in here, maybe you're dating, maybe you're a married person, newlywed, or you've been married uh, like me for 26 years, uh, I think these are all pertinent questions. If you are in and out of church or you're stepping your foot, dipping your foot in church and you're wondering, well, what does the church believe about these things? Or what does this particular church believe about these things? Uh, I think people want clarity. And I think genuinely, uh, we're all in the same boat uh, in that regard. Uh, and, and I think it, it makes sense because the culture around us offers all kinds of different information when it comes to men and women and gender and all those type of things. And so it, depending on where you're from, what your background is, uh, whether you grew up uh, in the Middle East, whether you grew up in the Far East, whether you grew up in uh, Southern United States, there are things that the culture has given you that are things that have to be evaluated by scripture. We have to process those things. And, and oftentimes those things that we've grown up with, those things that uh, are from our past or maybe from our present, from our uh, realized or our, our experience, they begin to shape all kinds of things. And a lot of those are cultural things. And the culture, even today, I think one of the most predominant things that we find that's so confusing today, and if you're raising kids in this, you know, is it seems like there's a whole lot about gender fluidity. And I mean, can you pick your gender or, you know, what, what, you know, what is that all about? And so uh, it's almost like uh, when the culture looks at us, depending on where you are, whether you're from a really staunch conservative culture or you're from one that you would say is very progressive or on the fringes of that progressive movement, you might find yourself on any number number of places of what the culture offers you. But oftentimes a church is not a lot different. Uh, I mean, you can come to a different church here or there and you might hear a different uh, set of beliefs or interpretations regarding this. Uh, uh, just uh, a couple years ago, um, Veronica and I were on a trip to San Diego and uh, we were uh, in, in the airport uh, in Memphis and we were waiting for our flight and uh, we were sitting there as you always do. And I'm a people watcher, okay? I mean, I'm just gonna... I mean, hopefully it's not too creepy. I try to be discreet about it. But uh, some of y'all know what I mean. I, you just kind of like wonder what people's stories are and, you know, where they're from and where they're going. And it just intrigues me, you know, kind of how this whole thing works and where people are going. And, and we were sitting there waiting in the terminal for our flight. And uh, across the way, just right across the way, we were waiting for about an hour across from a family where the husband was wearing, he had a plaid shirt, you know, like a lot of us wear boots and jeans. But the wife and the daughters all had long skirts on, had uh, um, head coverings on, had no makeup on, and I, I was wondering what their story was. And it was just interesting to me, and that's not to vilify that or, you know, try to uh, demonize that or think that's a bad thing. That they believe that that is exactly what they're supposed to do and that they're honoring God when they do that. But interestingly, when I come in here, I, I mean, I don't see any head coverings. And uh, I mean, you might choose to wear a long dress if you want to, but uh, I don't think that there's anyone that's forcing you to do that here. And, and we've made decisions about those things. And I think it gets confusing, doesn't it? Uh, it gets confusing because the world offers us a lot of options. And it seems like oftentimes the church offers us a lot of options. And that can leave us feeling really disillusioned and confused. Um, 
It can be, leave us con- being confused. If, if you're a woman in here, um, you might have experienced that. That might be your very present experience in reality. Well, you're wondering what you can't do and what you can't do and what these people believe about you and those type of things. And if you're, uh, if you're uh, a man in here, you might have particular beliefs, but you might have not sure exactly why you believe what you believe. And you want to get it right. Everybody really at the end of the day just wants to get it right. We want to do the right thing. But there's a problem with it, right? Um, I think the problem oftentimes is, is simply this, is that with all the different opinions and all the information out there, both within the culture and oftentimes within the church, I think oftentimes we live in a soundbite culture where we try to reduce things down to some tweetable phrase. We, we try to make it really pithy and really quick and really what we would call plain or something like that, try to simplify it because we want to live in a simple culture, right? We want, it, we want a simple answer. And then sometimes we realize that we're, we're not just living in kind of this uh, soundbite culture, but we're also living in what I would call a tribal culture. I mean, the last few years, I mean, I, I think you've probably experienced this. I know I have. Uh, there has just been this dividing line in all number of issues, whether it's masks or vaccines or whether it's the political environment, within the church or outside the church. It just seems like the culture right now is so cynical, so divided and so tribal. And we're so quick to put labels and camps and, and, and to arrive at positions that we've no longer, uh, seems, been able to have the ability to dialogue and talk about things. And you've got these sound bites flying around, you've got this tribal culture. And then I, I would say this is true. What I see as a pastor, having pastored for several decades now, is that I look at the church and we live in a biblically illiterate culture. Uh, we, we, even with people that have deeply held beliefs, oftentimes they don't know how to substantiate those biblically. They, they haven't done the work. They haven't looked at scripture and come underneath its authority. And you mix all that together, all the confusion culturally, all the confusion in the church, the sound bites, the tribal culture, and the biblical illiteracy. And it can just leave you really disheartened and confused. And some of you are really feeling very confused right now. You're like, why are we talking about this? Some of you are feeling very awkward right now. You don't want to talk about this. And some of you are in the room today and you're eager to talk about this. And you're saying, finally, somebody is actually saying out loud what we've all been talking about and wondering about. And depending on where you are, the beauty of what we get to do here is we don't have to arrive at a a cultural definition. And we don't have to arrive at maybe a traditional um, definition on these issues. We get to pick a third way, which I think is a much better way. We get to hold high the scripture that God has given us, the very word of God, and we're able to open it up in community. And we're able to say, what does this say? And I feel like the church has lost the art of this. It used to happen in community. Now it happens through podcasts and now it happens online and if it happens at all. But we get an opportunity together for the next six weeks to do something that the church has done for millennia is they sit down and they say, what does God say about this? And that's the beauty of what we get to do. And if you're wondering what kind of church we are, where we land on things uh, over the course of this series, I'm going to do what I believe is my job is to open scripture to the best of my ability, say, this is what I think scripture says. Because my heart is that we as a people of God, me as an individual first, and then we uh, as a people of God say, we are here to be obedient to whatever God has said. And um, we don't make apologies for that. Um, We do that in humility like we just prayed, but we don't make apologies for that. 
because that's what church is. And some people don't like that. And if you don't like that, uh, hey, there's a lot of other churches that uh, they don't do that. Um, And that's perfectly fine, but that's what we're going to do. And this is what we're going to do together. So I want to I talk about these things. We're going to talk about divine design today. But I want to give you five quick things. And I'll say this real quick. Uh, today is a lot of information, okay? This is going to be almost like drinking from a fire hose, which you're like, okay, it's like every other Sunday with you. But uh, the one thing I have tried to do today is to actually give you some lists uh, so if you're a note taker, I'm going to encourage you to get out a pen and paper or your uh, smart device, uh, whatever you would call that thing in your pocket. Um, and I'm going to give you an excuse to look at it because I want you to write down some notes because my hope today is to be clear. Here's five things I want you to do with me. The first thing I want you to do is to engage the scripture as our authority. Okay, out of the gate. Um, if you do not have a Bible with you, I want you to bring one for the next six weeks as a, as a practice, okay? Uh, again, when I was a kid and I went to church, um, and we didn't go to church all the time, but I can remember uh, one thing they always said is, do you have your Bible? And I know you have it on your phone, all that stuff like that, but could we just maybe just become the type of people that have a hardbound Bible, you know, an actual tangible thing? And if you don't have one, that's not an indictment on you. We have free ones for you, okay? And so if you don't have one, they'll be out there available today. Just go to the Welcome Center and they will give you one for free. And it'll be our gift to you because we believe that this is our authority and we come underneath it together. And so we're going to open that together um, over the course. This is, I want you to engage the scripture as authority and give it the attention that it deserves. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to truly listen to the story of scripture. What we're going to do our best to do over the context, uh, over the course of the next six weeks is to give the story of scripture that we believe it shares and the story that it tells the main plot line, because that leads us to better understanding of the particular nuances of specific passages within the scripture. That's the way we handle scripture. That's what we do every week around here. And we're going to do that together over the next six weeks. The third thing that I want you to do or challenge you to do is to embrace the implications of the gospel together. We are gospel people. Um, The gospel is the heart. It is the good news of God's redemptive work to reorder the world around his good and perfect reign and his kingship, his kingdom. And so we're going to reflect on the implications of what that means. And then the fourth thing is, I want you in the conversation to extend trust rather than suspicion. Sometimes I know this is, this is just kind of a guide that we would tell our kids in junior high or elementary school is, hey, listen, think the best about someone. Uh, don't think the worst. Don't think someone's saying something they're not saying. Only listen to what they are saying. And if you have a question about what they're saying, uh, ask a question about it. Um, we, we have designed this um, and we're trying to do this over the course of not just this series, but series in the future, is to create more dialogue rather than monologue so that we can process things together. We're gonna have two Q&As, one in uh, two weeks from now, uh, on halfway through the series, and one at the end on a Sunday night. We'll put that out for everybody. And that's gonna be a Q&A time, about two hours long. There's gonna be coffee and some kind of snack, I'm sure. Um, but come together, we're all gonna talk about this because we want to be able to, in trust rather than suspicion, have conversations about what God says and do it in community, which is the fifth thing. I want us to do this together, do it together. 
Um, last week, uh, Nathan McCallum preached a phenomenal sermon uh, on uh, John 17, and one of the takeaways for me was uh, that God, uh, Jesus, prayed specifically for our unity, uh, and that's what we're about here, is uh, a divided world we want to present what it looks like when we in humility approach one another underneath the Lordship of Christ so that we can actually model to the world what the true gospel of good news is, okay? So is everybody good with those five things? Raise your hand if you're good. All in favor, say aye. All opposed, leave. Never mind, just joking, just joking. Okay, so let's just, let, y'all wanna dive into the deep end? Opening question. Did God design men and women for roles of authority and submission? Ooh, okay. Where do you start to answer a question like that? Well, we're gonna start right here, Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's what we believe. Uh, we believe that uh, this world is not an accident. We believe that it is not happenstance, that we are not a loose collection of molecules that happen to just generate at the right time. We believe that this world, this universe has an architect, that he is a designer and he is a good designer. Uh, a matter of fact, uh, throughout history, the men and women uh, through the centuries, through the millennia, have searched to understand this innate longing to know why we're here. Uh, it has actually fueled within um, the human race movements to always explore, you know, to go to new places. And one of my favorite places that I, I see this manifest is what this refers to right here. As a matter of fact, I wanna show you a picture real quick. This picture, I'll get over to the side. Uh, this picture is the first telev television photo ever broadcast of the earth. It looks like one of those um, old school, um, what do they call it? What's the thing where they see the baby? The ultrasound, sorry. Like, wow, this is gonna be a great sermon, right? Uh, this is gonna be really good. Uh, but actually that is the first televised image of the earth. You know when this happened? 1960. 1960. This was the best we could do 62 years ago. And, and, and able to observe this world. This, was, this has fueled the exploration. What you know over the next decade there, we, we got some really good pictures. And um, if, you, if you keep up with uh, uh, space and astronomy and those type of things, you know, like we, we're making new telescopes all the time. You got SpaceX and up rockets. I mean, there is this longing to know what's out there, right? And people come to different conclusions on that. Our, our conclusion on that is that at the end of all these things, in the beginning, God. And the first pages of scripture, they tell us the story of how this God interacted with his creation. It, it's not just enough that God created things, set things in motion, and uh, he was a great architect, but he was a, he was a personal God. And he got down on our level. And when you get into the creation story, it, 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 you know, if you've been to like a wedding that I do, I always talk about this, but it, it's this beautiful crescendo. It's like every verse in Genesis chapter one tells not a myth, but a story. It tells the story of this God and his intent to create light and darkness and divide the two and land and sea and birds and all the beautiful things that, that we enjoy and uh, we, we go on vacations to see, right? All those things. But as the crescendo builds, like any good musical score or any good screenplay or any good book, it gets to a climax. And the climax is found in Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 28. 
And this is where it happens. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We're going to the next verse in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, what we're gonna do is, this is just for clarity, we're gonna go back through here and we're gonna, we're gonna call out a few things, okay? Uh, and this will be helpful when you're studying scripture yourself, it might be helpful to go back and take some notes and just try to, I do this when, anytime I preach. I mean, I got pages and pages of notes and y'all don't even get half of what I actually write down. So, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But um, let's, let's just ask the first question, who is, are we talking about in this passage? Well, the word in Hebrew is Adam or Adam is what we would say. Now, what's important to understand is that the word Adam in Genesis chapter one is actually this term, what we would call mankind. Uh, we would call it maybe today uh, as language shifts and changes, we call it humankind or we would call it human. The word Adam first and foremost was, was not a personal name. As a matter of fact, it was uh, first a designation. It was talking about that Adam, humankind, was created from the Adamah, which was the ground. And in this creation, Genesis chapter 1 illuminates for us that, that men and women, these humans, are image bearers of God. There is a they within the passage. The the people that are referred to in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is a people. It's not a personal, it's not a singular person. It is the male and the female. That's why you see the plural pronoun uh, pop up in, Hebrew, uh, in, in the Hebrew in Genesis chapter one. And when we look at this, the, the male and the female, uh, the they, the Adam, the mankind, the humankind, the humans, what were they there to do? Well, you can glance back through the scripture, but I'll bullet point it for you. Here's what, uh, here's what they were there to do, that they were created that they may rule, okay? They were created that they may fill the earth and that they may subdue it. And the way Genesis 1 portrays the telling of the story of God's creative intent and his good and flourishing design for his creation was that these three things would take place. And that these, th these three things would necessitate the man and the woman together. You can't fill the earth without the two of them. Uh, they can't rule without the two of them. That in, as image bearers of God, that he intended for them to come within creation and to do these three things and to do them together. Now, why? Why did he do that? Well, you see it there in the passage. You can glance back through it for yourself that they were to image God together within creation. Uh, if you, we don't, we're not gonna hang out on this very long, but if you look at the word image and likeness, um, Basically, the, the idea is that God would place within his creation people that would reflect his glory and function as his image bearers to facilitate the work that he created this place to do. And, and in doing that, you can start to see, can't you, that what God did is he stepped in with intent, with creative design. He created male and female. He gave them purpose and he gave them a purpose because he wanted the world to see the magnificent and magnificence and the glory 
of God, their creator, and reflect back that glory to God. It's like when uh, we went to uh, St. Louis several years ago, uh, many years ago, and we went to the art museum there. And I, um, I, I like art. Um, I'm fairly okay at art. I, can, I mean, I kind of won some art awards. I'm not gonna say anything, you know, back in high school, you know. Uh, whatever. My mom thinks I'm a great artist. She's always saying stuff like, oh, Daniel, you can do that. And I'm like, okay, whatever. But, um, but I can remember going to this art museum and uh, uh, I remember going in and there was this Monet painting, right? And I'd never seen in person a Monet painting, uh, but this thing was huge. It was like the size of my living room wall. I mean, it was gigantic. And I, you know, I'm thinking like Monet, he painted a little thing like this, but no, this thing was huge. And it was immersive and it, it made you feel like you were right there. And, and it, it looked kind of like it looks like when I take my glasses off, because if you know Monet, he's an impressionist, right? So it's not real clear. And, but it pulls you in. And the beauty of that is everybody, when I say Monet, 90% of you know what I'm talking about. Because it's not just about the painting, it speaks of the painter, doesn't it? The artist. And that's what we do. Men and women together, we reflect back, not the work ourselves, but the one, the artist, the one that created us. And there's a few things we take from this. So I'm gonna give you a quick list, all right? Because we're gonna hit three stops along the way. This is the first, <coughs> excuse me, this is the first list. Here's a summary. This is what we find in Genesis chapter one. This distinguishes the man and woman from the rest of created beings, okay? They're distinct. They're not like birds. They're not like uh, fish. Uh, you're not like a rhinoceros or giraffe. Uh, thank the Lord, uh, we're distinct, we're different than the rest of creation, okay? The second thing you see is this, is this indicates a special relationship of the man and the woman with God. Um, th it wasn't just that they were created to function to do some things, they were created to have a relationship with the capacity for relationship one with one another and the capacity with a relationship together with God. The third thing you see as a point of summary is this indicates that the man and the woman were unique from one another. Now, let me hear, let me, let me say this. There's some that would say that there's no distinction between male and female. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that we are unique, we are distinct, and that is part of God's good design, that he desires that. Now, there's a whole lot of questions that goes into that, um, and you might be wrestling with a lot of those. And those are the type of conversations we wanna have because uh, we, we wanna process things in dialogue and not just you know, talk about things and throw things out there. But what we believe scripture says is that, that men and women are created uniquely and distinctly, and that an accurate following of God embraces that reality. The fourth thing that we see in this passage is it indicates a situation, an environment where God blessed. This is that good flourishing environment. This is what you want for your kids to grow up in. You want them to grow up in a flourishing environment. This is what God wants for his kids, his sons and his daughters. He blesses this place. And then the last thing um, I think we have up here is this indicates a special shared Role and responsibility equally together in his creation. Something that I will, if you'll hear me use this word called mutuality. Um, what I believe Genesis chapter one says, if we just stopped at Genesis one, we didn't go any farther, I believe that we would see that it indicates a shared responsibility and a shared role of the man and the woman within creation to function as the image bearers and to facilitate God's good kingdom and reflect that glory with the earth. And it takes both of those. So, What's my conclusion at Genesis chapter one? Genesis chapter one conclusion is the man and woman are unique in gender, 
and are united in relationship and responsibility as equal image bearers of God, okay? Uh, if you were just to stop at the end of Genesis chapter one, I think that would be your conclusion. Um, they're unique, yes. They're united in relationship, yes. They're united in responsibility, yes. So if that was the end of the story, then that'd be the end of the story. There wouldn't be any more scripture, but there is. Matter of fact, there's a whole other chapter that uh, if you've read uh, the first few chapters of Genesis, you're like, are there two creation stories? And, and there kind of is and there's not. There's one creation story. But what Genesis chapter 2 does is it actually changes its focus and it goes back in detail to tell us a little bit more precisely what God did in Genesis chapter 1. And so um, when we move to Genesis chapter 2, it's not a separate story, it's the same story, but it dives back into the story and gives us a, a better perspective on it, right? In some more detail. So we can't read the whole chapter, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna begin with Genesis chapter two, verse seven. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. This is where God, I like to say, got his hands dirty. He gave, um, he gave significance uh, to the dirt. You know, he got in and he, he formed it uh, out of this. And the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man that he had formed. So God created a man and he created a place, a home for the man. Um, and this is a physical place. Uh, this is a garden. This is not some fictitious myth. This is a place on the planet uh, in the Fertile Crescent is where we believe it is that God created and he placed humans for the first time. This is where we see this begin. But if you follow the story out, this is not the end of the story because remember Genesis 1 tells us that it's a, uh, that there are two image bearers. There is a male and a female. And so the story has to include those. And so the story begins to tell more precisely how that happened. And here's what it says if you skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden and he did this to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So again, for, for sake of uh, expediency, I'm gonna give you two things that you see in that passage that you see the, the man is given. The first thing is he's given purpose, which we talked about in Genesis 1. What's he gonna do? He's gonna cultivate the land. He's gonna care for it. He's gonna work it, okay? The second thing is he's endowed with a moral choice. Uh, God gives us the ability to choose. It's right there in Genesis chapter two, okay? Uh, he says, you can choose this or you can choose this. And this doesn't get into the question, uh, we're not gonna get into the question of theodicy, which is basically like, where does evil come from? That's not the point of, the, uh, of this series. It's a really good question. But what we see here is not that God created evil, but he created the potential for choice, which means that the man and the woman would be forced into a position to desire God themselves or turn to themselves. And that's the way that their story plays out. But remember that with the purpose and the choice, that was in there, remember that God created a male and a female. Genesis 1 told us that. And so where do we get that? Well, verse 18 tells us, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for, for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Okay. Um, now, when we, when we hear the word helper, um, the question becomes, what does that word mean? What does that word mean? 
So sometimes it's helpful for us because we, we have so many connotations. Uh, one example I thought of uh, this week was uh, I was reading a book and they mentioned this and I thought, oh, well, that's, a, that's kind of an interesting way to think about that. Uh, if you're a Downton Abbey fan in here, do we have any Downton Abbey fans? Where are my, where are my guys at? You're like Downton Abbey, okay. This is, fits right into this series, okay. Um, Downton Abbey, you know, like uh, we, we liked that show, we watched it, all this kind of stuff. And, and, and it's interesting, right? But it's not our reality, uh, I don't think. I don't think you're like the Crawleys and you live upstairs and all the servants live downstairs and you ring the little bell and they come and get what you need and all those kind of things. And, and some of us, when we see the word helper, that's kind of what we think of, right? We think of somebody that's there as an assistant, someone who's there as a servant, someone who's a subordinate to us, someone that's there to submit to our whims and our needs. Uh, and, and that's what some of us think of. Some of us, though, realize that that's not the only definition of helper. A matter of fact, one of the other examples I thought of was, uh, do we have any Lord of the Rings fans? We're going through different things. We've got some Lord of the Rings fans, right? Uh, remember Two Towers. Two Towers. Uh, I don't want to give this away, but it's a 20-year-old movie, so you're on your own. Uh, you know, two towers. Uh, in the first one, Gandalf, uh, Gandalf, the great wizard, he dies. And then there's this, uh, they're at Helm's Deep and they're, they're kind of all about to go down, right? I mean, this, this whole thing, all the orcs and Sauron, they're all coming uh, after him. And then it seems like everything's going on. And then on the horizon, Gandalf, the white, appears. And he comes to rescue and he comes to save and he comes to help. Now, both those things are help. So our question is, what does the Bible say it means to be a helper? Now, let me give you the Hebrew for it real quick. We'll practice a little uh, original language because you know that the Bible was not written in English. The phrase helper suitable for him is Ezer Konegdo. Y'all wanna try it? Everybody say Ezer Konegdo. You got Hebrew, you got it, okay? Now. Different translations, English translations, translate this phrase differently. Here's a few options, okay? The NIV, which is what we're using today, or the New American Standard Version, they say, the word, they say this, helper suitable for him. The ESV says a helper fit for him. The New King, King James Version says comparable to him. And the New Revised Standard Version says as his partner. Okay, now all those have a little bit of a different weight to them and say different things. I think if you're a King James uh, person in here, I think it says a help meet. It does not say help mate, okay? That is a mistranslation. The King James Version does not say help mate. It says that she is a help meet. She meets a need in there. So within all these translations, what does it mean? Where do we get our definition? Because we don't get it from... Uh, Downton Abbey, and we don't get it from uh, Lord of the Rings. We don't get it from our culture. What does God say? Well, the word Ezer actually means strength, help, savior, or rescuer. There's 16 times in the Old Testament where God is described as a rescuer of his people in need, or he's their strength or their power. And there's three other times this very word is used, Ezer is used, and it refers to a military protector, okay? Um, and if you want some of the scriptures, I can give them to you later. And that can be a topic of a conversation, a Q&A and all that kind of stuff. But let me give you two examples so you can see it, right? The word Ezer. Uh, Psalm thirty-three twenty. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help. That's the word Ezer and our shield, okay? God is not our assistant. He's not our servant. He is our help. He comes to help us in a great time of need. That's what the psalmist is calling out for. He's in desperation. 
Psalm 121, one and two, another example. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help, that's the word ezer, come from? My help, ezer, comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. So when we get back to that phrase, when we get to the phrase with that in mind, uh, this, this is the overwhelming testimony of the Hebrew scriptures, that a, a really good way to see the translation would be, I will make a strength, help, savior, or rescuer corresponding to him corresponding to him. So let me ask the question, just from the passage itself, what kind of helper is the woman? Well, the answer is first, what we see uh, is what she is a, an answer to the aloneness, aloneness of the man that God said is not good. I, I think it's really funny because, uh, you know, God looked at this guy out there in the story and he's like, this is not good, right? It's like when some of y'all think about like, oh gosh, this is not, you know, like this is God. Okay. He looked at that and said, this is not a complete picture. This is not good. What will I, what, what is he addressing? He's addressing the aloneness of the man. And in doing so, it leads us to understand what was God trying to correct or fulfill, probably a better way to say it, in his creation. Well, look at this one. Number two. Uh, is this, one that will fulfill the human task of ruling together introduced in Genesis chapter one. Genesis one sets the template, man and woman were to rule together as mutual image bearers over creation as partners. And in doing so now we get the detail that God looked at the man and said, that is not good for him to rule alone. It's not good. So what do we do? We create woman and why do we do that? It's so that they can fulfill the task that God gave them as mutual image bearers. This is why we have to reclaim God's story, God's, uh, God's design for his image bearers. This is God's good and perfect design. And the third part of that you see in the passage is one that was of the same kind to fulfill God's image within creation. Um, it's interesting, if you, if you look at the story, uh, there's this uh, contrast or juxtaposition between um, the animals. There's two of everything, you know, there's a male and a female this, a, you know, a, a parrot or a toucan or what, a whale, I don't know. Um, and it's like the man is there and he's alone. And if you kind of read it poetically, the way it's written, it, it, it's meant to build this tension that everybody has one of their kind except the man. And this is why it's not good. And so God says, this is tov, this is good. I think the, the actual phrasing is tov mahov. It, it's poetic, it's supposed to rhyme. This is very good. This is what I want. And so if you, if you look at that story with that in mind, right? Of the same kind, of the same purpose, it's not good to be alone, then how does the rest of the story play out? Well, look what it says, that he's not alone. Well, that's what he says right here. So the same kind, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. Now, let me just stop here. That's actually not what it says, okay? It doesn't mean your Bible is wrong. Uh, the word rib is implanted in there because it, it actually means from the side of. This word from the side of is actually, I mean, you see it in other places, like um, one good example is when uh, Noah builds the ark and it talks about from the si on the side of the ark. Uh, it's the same thing. It just means of the same or part of the same thing. It's off the side uh, of the man. He closed the place up with flesh and then the Lord God made the woman from the rib that she had taken out of man and he brought her to the man. Um, follow the story out, verse 23. 
The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she's taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So beautiful, uh, I mean, beautiful picture. If you've uh, had this read at your wedding, or I, I mean, I probably read it at many of your weddings, uh, because it's a beautiful picture, right? This is what God created a husband and wife to be. This is uh, kind of the, you know, Paul's going to refer back to this, all these kind of things. This is, a, this is a beautiful thing. But there's a whole lot of stuff tucked in here, right? When it comes to the, our initial question, and what was our initial question? Did God create roles of authority and submission according to gender? What do we see scripture saying? Well, let me give you a summary of what I think we see in this passage. The man was given authority over the garden, but he was not given authority over the woman. You see nowhere in the, in the passage that the man was given authority over the woman. Some people, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure at a Q&A, we'll talk about creation order. Some people will talk about the fact that he named her, which he actually doesn't give her a personal name until after the fall. Okay, he calls her Ish, which is woman, uh, to Ish, which is uh, Isha, which is woman, to Ish, which is man. That is, that's not a personal name. He doesn't name her until after the fall. There's, there's no sign within Genesis 1 and 2 that he has given authority, explicit authority over a woman. Um, and if you see it in there, then we can talk about it, but I don't think it's in there. Number two... The woman was created from the side of the man as one like him. That's why we get the uh, kind of the refrain of bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, to answer the man's aloneness and to fulfill the task given to the humans as outlined in Genesis chapter one, okay? This is the second thing you see in the passage. The third thing that you see in the passage is the man and the woman were designed in God's image, reflecting the unity and oneness of the Godhead and the uniqueness in gender. Now, here's the beauty of a thing that we could do like 10 months on is uh, when you think about, well, if you think back to when we did our Deep Truth series and we talked about the Trinity, I think Nathan even mentioned this last week because you see it in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, is that in the Godhead, we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have uniqueness, but what we also have is oneness. And so as image bearers, what do we reflect? We reflect the uniqueness and we reflect the oneness. But there's no subordination eternally that you see within the Godhead. And so what you see within the creation in this Genesis story is you see unity and oneness, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, united in task, unique in design in order to accomplish God's good and perfect work within his creation. And this is what you see in Genesis chapter two. But it's not the only thing. Fourth thing you see, and then I'm gonna get over to the side, maybe you can see this. The man and the woman were free of struggle and free of shame. There, there's no hint at this point in the story that they're struggling with one another, they're not struggling with God, they're not start struggling in their work, any of those things, and they are completely free and full in their relationship with one another. There is no jockeying for position, there's no turmoil, there's no who gets to make the decision, or why did you say that, or what did you mean by that? What you see here is unity and oneness reflected of God himself in eternity. And that makes sense, right? Because why would God not want his created beings to reflect his glory? Why would he want it any other way? God is not at odds. God is one. He is of the same stuff, which is the last part of that. Number four, the man and the woman were free of struggle and free of shame. So if that is the way it all started, 
right? Well, okay, where, does, where did things go wrong? Well, there's another page, <laughs> right? Genesis chapter 3 tells the story, and we don't, have to go, we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but the serpent shows up on the scene. Um, he's more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, let me pause because this is where people start to say things uh, about women, okay? And I'm just going to say it out loud because some people say these type of things and people in the church have said these things. Some of you have heard this and some of you have been hurt by this um, and it's just not true. Um, people say, well, the reason the serpent came to the woman is because she was more easily deceived. Um, she is ontologically inferior. And so God, uh, the, the problem with this is that it got outside uh, the order of the way God created things, um, that women are um, intellectually inferior, that they don't have the rational capacity. They're too emotional and the rational capacity to make decisions. The Bible does not say that. Uh, it does not say that. And if you've been told that, uh, let me just apologize on behalf of uh, uh, the church that, or where you've heard that, that's not what the scripture says. It, there is no inferiority intellectually, emotionally, or spiritually because of your gender. And this story, the way the story plays out will begin, I think, to actually illuminate the opposite of that. And here's why I can say that. Look what Genesis 3 verse 2 says. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree in the garden, but God, did not, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Which we don't have, we don't know if she made that part up. That's an inference. People say, well, you know, she's just making stuff up. We don't know if her and Adam had a conversation or not. We're not told that and we can't impress that on there. You will not certainly die, the serpent says to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like Elohim going good and evil. You will be like God's. Now, this is where the temptation settles in. And so what, is, what happens with the woman? Well, let's follow the story out and make a few points. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was where? Where, where was he? He was with her, right? And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open. And they realized they, I didn't bold they right there, they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So what do you see here? You see the two of them together in the passage sinning together. Did they play different parts in the story? Yeah. Um, was the woman deceived? Yes. Was the man willfully disobedient to God's desire? Yes. But what do we know? We know that the author of Genesis chapter three made a specific point to emphatically, and repeated words are important in scripture, repeated words have precedence. What he's trying to say is that they sinned together. Just like they were to rule together, they fell together, the man and the woman. So all the jokes, guys, I've heard these jokes, that you say like, oh man, we'd be fine if it wasn't for that woman. Wrong, wrong, stop saying it. It's not what Genesis says, it's not biblical and it's not funny to say it. It's not what scripture says, it does not honor the Lord to say that. That's not what it says. As a matter of fact, the way that the story plays out portrays the fact that just as they sinned together, they suffered together. The woman, 
He said, I will make, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It's very clear that in Jesus, uh, in, Jesus in Genesis 3.16, this is the first time you see hierarchy or position of authority arrive. Up to now, there's been unity, there's been oneness in purpose, in design, in relationship. There has been free of shame, free of struggle. But now post-sin, when they turn to themselves, and it makes sense, right? Because what does it mean to be God? To be God means that you have preeminence. If the serpent's temptation was accurate, and it is, sin, Paul will say this later, sin is idolatry. Sin Put yourself in a position, in a higher position than someone else and says that you have to serve my needs, my will, and my whims. And that does not happen until the temptation and they ate it together and then the result, which you could argue, is it prescriptive or descriptive? I don't know that it completely matters because here's the reality. The reality is once we turn to ourselves, we begin to battle with one another and if you look at where that plays out, where does that play out? It plays out in marriages, the divorce rate, and, and, and people will say this, and it is true, the divorce rate in the church is equal or higher than it is in the world. If we have the good news of Jesus and what we're saying the Bible says works, then what is the problem? The problem, I think, is a misdiagnosis of the source of the problem. People will try to portray things and say, well, man, we gotta, we gotta hold men accountable, yeah. Guess what? We do. And we've got to hold women accountable too. We, we've got to raise the bar of engagement. We've got to raise the bar of expectation. And there's nothing in this that lowers the bar of expectation for a man or accountability for a man. It actually does the opposite. When we understand that we were created in oneness and unity, our sense of responsibility, our sense of engagement, our sense of accountability goes up, not down. So you don't have to preach sermons. I don't have to get up here on Father's Day and tell you how bad you're doing so you can start to do better as a husband and a dad. I don't have to leverage you like there's some extra biblical impression of accountability God has on you. No, you know what your, you know what your accountability as a man is? Your accountability as a man is to be transformed into the image of Christ. There is no higher calling. Why would we need anything else other than to say, what would Jesus do? If he were in your shoes, how would he live your life if he was you? How would he be the husband that you're supposed to be? How would he be the wife you're supposed to be? How would he be the child you're supposed to be? We don't need some other thing impressed on scripture other than Jesus Christ himself. You see, they were one in unity in creation and they were one in unity in the fall. And when it went bad, it went really, really bad. There was a desire now for the woman to rule over the man and for the man to rule over the woman. Those phrases, those words are important. They show up two other times in Genesis, as a matter of fact, that word rule. One is a chapter later in Genesis chapter four. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door, same phrase, it desires to have you, but you must rule over, rule over it. There's a desire for rule, but you've got to have authority and rule over it. 
This is, the same thing pops up in Genesis 37 in the story of Joseph with his brothers. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 8, his brother says to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Remember, he wanted to, then they had these sheaves that were bowing down to him and they would worship him uh, because he was king, basically. And they said, are you really going to rule over us? And we don't see this stuff until Genesis 3, this ruling and desiring. But this is what you see. You, you see it pop up because what does it say in Genesis 3, 16? It says that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And this has been the story, has it not, of creation since the fall. There's a lot of people will talk about things like slippery slopes, okay? They'll say, well, man, but yeah, if, if we go down this road of what you're talking about, you think scripture says this, then what about all the things that it could mean? Let me say this. We've been on a slippery slope for a long time. There has been abuse. There has been divorce. I mean, what more information do we need? We need a better way. We need a third way. We need Jesus's way. And when we embrace that, I believe the potential for a, a full and free, shame, shameless life within the church, within our homes, within society, becomes a thing that the world looks at and go, ah, that's what we were created to be. That's the way it's supposed to look. And we don't have to look to culture for, with, its, with its fake and futile little attempts at perfection. And we don't have to look at I mean, who's in and who's out for perfection. We can look at the story of God and fully embrace what God has in front of us. And it is a better way. So let me give you the summary. It's time to go. Um, here's the summary. The temptation and sin of the woman <clears throat> was against God's authority, not the authority of man. Okay? She did not rebel against man's authority. That is not in the scripture. Uh, people will say that, but you, it is not expressed in the scripture. And we've got to be careful that we don't impress things on the text that are not there because we want them to be true and it actually makes us more comfortable. It's not there. The second thing, the man and the woman were united in their guilt as both sinned together as one. Okay? The third thing, the man and the woman's sin resulted in the loss of their oneness, which had been reflected in their mutual support mutual strength and mutual sharing. Fourth thing, we're running out of time. The man and the woman's sin resulted in the woman's disordered need for the man to fulfill her needs rather than God. That's the desire part of it. While the man has a disordered need to rule over her. This is where the strife and the struggle enter in. So you can kind of copy those down and for just a second, if, if, if you don't have all these things, we'll find a way to get it out so that you can go like, what did you say about that? We, we can put it out in some form. I don't know what form, but we'll figure it out. Um, but with all that in mind, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, those are three summaries. Let's go back to our opening question, make one statement, and we'll finish. Did God design men and women for roles of authority and submission? According to Genesis 1 through 3, we see authority and submission in the passage, but we don't see it in Genesis chapter 3. So the question is, the way the question is phrased is, did God design men and women for that? Or is that a result of the fall? So here's my take on it. I'm going to throw a phrase at you. You're going to hear me say, because this is where I land. 
Um, I, I believe in what I call complementarity without hierarchy, okay? Here's what that means. Women and men are created uniquely and distinctly from one another in gender while simultaneously created to mutually lead in equality and unity. Therefore, while there is uniqueness between men and women, there are no intrinsic roles of authority and submission mandated by scripture based on gender, gender according to Genesis one through three. So complementarity means there's uniqueness and there's design that men are not women and women are not men. God made them different, but he did it on purpose. And the purpose was that they would share and work together in unity to rule and administrate as partners, full, free, equal partners, using their gifts together, and they would not be subjected to hierarchy. There would be no struggle for position. It doesn't happen until after the fall. And so I will make the case, I mean, I would make the case, this is where I'm just kind of putting my cards on the table. I would make the case that, again, there is a better way. And for us to understand, for the guys in the room, this is not a threat, this is an opportunity. For the women in the room, this is not license. This is a, a way for us to come together and to fulfill what God's called us to be in our marriages, in our homes, in our society, our church, to embrace that the character and the gifting and the calling of individuals through the gift of the Spirit is God's defining characteristic as we are equal image bearers. And we have to reclaim that. We don't need something, somebody to say something about gospel manhood or biblical masculinity or biblical femininity. I don't even say that word. Okay. Um, what we need is a reclaiming of God's vision. We don't need simple answers. We need a people that is will, are willing to look at scripture, to dialogue together and to submit to God's design wherever that leads us because he's a good God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather around it. We thank you that you have made yourself known. And so today, God, we take a step forward um, together as your people. We submit to one another and to your word. I thank you that we don't have to make all the decisions um, alone. Uh, we don't have to figure this all out alone. We thank you that there's no fear when we lean in together. It's a beautiful thing. And so we pray that as we grow as individuals, even if we disagree about things and interpretations, we know that people that love God and love scripture come to different interpretations of this. And we all want to do our best to get it right because we want to honor you. And so God, give us that humility, but also give us uh, courage and give us fortitude to be the type of church that wrestles with hard questions. In Jesus' name, amen.